Good morning, everybody. It's a, always a great honor and a pleasure to be with the people of God and to be able to worship and to worship freely. Because today I'm going to speak about some of the countries in the world where people cannot worship our God freely. And so you can probably hear from my accent that I am not American. I was born in South Africa and I was born to uh, parents in the ministry that had decided to join the ministry in the heart of the apartheid system. And we joined and resisted the apartheid and we joined the black African movement of the Assemblies of God of Southern Africa and we were, my parents were planting churches <clears throat> throughout Southern Africa and speaking out against apartheid. So we lived predominantly by faith and we lived in very difficult conditions because the white apartheid system used to put plants in our church. And I see that we've got many children here in the audience, so I'm going to speak a little bit shortly about what happened then. Well, the Lord taught me through that period of how to trust in him, and that was largely through, because we were against this regime and we were fighting it and uh, working within the church to change the situation because we should be the head and not the tail, um, we were moving in very difficult conditions and oftentimes we were very poor and living by faith. And the Lord used to speak to us to do different things as a family and we used to pray as a family. And sometimes we didn't have food or one time we didn't have shoes and I remember we prayed for shoes and a couple of days later, I was the one that opened the doors, a little tart like this, looking up at the legs with all the boxes of shoes. So when the Lord gives you these encounters of faith, and then eventually he gave me frequent dreams, and the dreams were all the same. It was, I was about five, six years old, and I knew that the Lord was calling me to do something, and the dreams were always consistent. I was in a horrible, broken down room and I had documents and things in my hand representing what I knew was people that needed to be saved. And I knew that they were the body of Christ, the people of faith. But I had no idea what did that person do when you grew up? What do you call that person? So I never knew the answer to that. But eventually as I grew up and I studied and went into business, the Lord started calling me eventually to work with the persecuted church. And I believe it's because Jesus himself said, if one part suffers, we all suffer. So we need to stand with the persecuted church. But more importantly, he also said, they persecuted me they will persecute you also. So are we, as the body of Christ, ready to stand for our faith and what that means? Because we know that it will come. And today, in the world that we live in, the persecution of Christians is at an all-time high. Current reports indicate that whereas last year it was about 260 million Christians who live in extreme 
levels of persecution, that has now increased to 309. What does that mean? That means that 13 Christians every day are killed for their faith. About 12 churches or church buildings are attacked daily. Christians are unjustly imprisoned. And at least five that we know of are abducted daily for their faith. One part suffers. We all suffer. And so I believe the call today is to rise up and pray for the persecuted church. But also, as we are prayerful and pray for them, we should also assist them practically. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what happened in Afghanistan. And if we could have the first slide. The next one. So these are some of the families that we've assisted. Shai Fund and the next one. Shai Fund is started in about 2014. The next slide. And we offer mostly practical assistance to persecuted religious minorities, uh, mostly Christians across the globe today. We work on average in, at any current year in about seven to nine countries, assisting um, thousands every year. And if we can have the next slide. And since we've started in 2014, we've assisted over 170,000 people on the ground where some of the persecution in the Middle East and North Africa is at all-time highs, and the church is on their knees crying out to God, who will help us? And so I always say, will we rise to the call and say, yes, send me? Next slide. So let's talk a bit about Afghanistan, what happened because I think it's pertinent, because it's happened in the last year. And to understand the situation, we have to understand a little bit about what some of the Christians in some of the areas of the globe today are experiencing, including Afghanistan. So the situation in Afghanistan is that they do not accept that they have Christians in Afghanistan. So there's no public places or spaces that Christians can go to worship. Like we have churches on every street corner here in America. There is not one public church that Christians can worship in in Afghanistan. In fact, most of the Christians in Afghanistan are Christians who come from the majority religion, have had dreams and visions or have heard about Jesus Christ and have got saved, and for that they are persecuted by not only the government, but also their family and society. And so in Afghanistan, the underground church, as we call it, because it's all underground, is more in capsules or pods where they meet secretly, they change their locations, and they very much are in fear that at any time they will be infiltrated and the community will then be reported on, not only to the local community, but also to the authorities. And so we have a couple of problems in that the social society and civil society around, including family members, will often report on the believers and they will then be taken to the authorities. And if the local community does not feel that the authorities are doing enough 
to deal with them or that it's such a dishonor to that family, they will do what we call an honor killing and kill those Christians. So what we see in Afghanistan is a situation of a real underground church on the run and very much frightened for their faith, but also very much on the move and evangelizing and discipling those in very tough conditions. Next slide. We um, have worked extensively in Afghanistan, and I think I'm speaking to you about what happened in Afghanistan in terms of the airlifts and those that we've got out. And we've been able to get over 12,000 people out of Afghanistan, including members of the underground church that we knew were known to the Taliban. We knew that the Taliban, as August was approaching, and the United States had been asked to withdraw on 9-11. And obviously, for all reasons that we know, they chose not to withdraw on that day. And it's interesting that the Taliban asked the U.S. government to withdraw on that day. And instead, they decided to withdraw <clears throat> out of Afghanistan and handed over to the Taliban which follows a very radical interpretation of um, Sharia law called the Hanafi School of Jurisprudence. And it's a very radical, strict interpretation. And they were going to hand it over and they were going to pull out on the 31st of August. So setting the scene, it's the end of July and I start getting reports from the church in Afghanistan of what's been going on in the past two months. And we start to hear these reports that for some reason, the church that has largely been unknown, most people had no clue how many people were in the underground church because we were, they were kept so submerged and so hidden for their own protection that we start getting reports that they're getting text messages and they're getting uh, visits by the Taliban who are emboldened by what's going to happen on the 31st of August. And all of the reports and all of these text messages that they're getting to their private phones are all basically saying the same thing. We know that you are converts and that you have converted to Christianity. And under Taliban and Sharia law and their interpretation of it, this is apostasy. And the punishment for apostasy and being an infidel, leaving Islam, is death. And they said that they were going to hunt them down, make an example of them, men, women, and children. Next slide. So the situation is desperate on the ground. I'm getting these reports and people are saying to me, we have to evacuate them. We have to get them out. We need to save them. At the same time, because we know that they've been found out and we can't work out how, how is it that so many of them are known, what, where they live, who they are, who their family members are? What, how did they get all their personal phones? And we start to realize that what's happened is that the national database or the social security system that you would call it here in the United States has been made into a biometric 
electronic system in 2019 by the US and the European governments. And when they did that, many of the Afghan underground church had an option on that form to choose whether they wanted to declare their faith as something other than uh, Islam. And so they chose not to deny Jesus and they chose to put that we are Christian. So when at the end of uh, July towards the beginning of August we began to see the results of this, we understood that what had happened is that that national database with all the names of those Christians, their places of work, their personal telephones, their addresses, their family members, and all their biometrics, fingerprinting, had been handed over deliberately to the Taliban. The Taliban was now systematically going through those lists and was able to infiltrate into those particular people by doing different methods that they're very, very good at to get into these communities to act like they were wanting to seek to understand who Jesus was and they had direct access to many of them who had changed their faith and said we are Christian and so they started to hunt them down and they started to kill them and they started to go door from door looking for them and so many of them had to throw away their phones and get new phones They couldn't go to their places of work any longer because the community knew and the Taliban was using the community to also find them out and put pressure on them. And at the same time, of course, they could no longer live in their homes. So their children could no longer go to school. And so they were on the run. So then we started to realize that we needed safe houses. So we started putting up these Christians in safe houses, while we started to try and work out what do we do? How do we evacuate so many people from Kabul airport in a situation where we've handed over most of Kabul city, the only place that we hold now is the airport, and we need to get people through a very difficult situation to get them there. Next slide. So this is um, one of the families that we were trying to get onto some of these planes just like this. And you can see this is the message that they got. That um, I'll just read it to you because it's so shocking. And we had time and time again, we had messages like this. By turning away from the religion of Islam and following the outdated religion of Christianity, you infidels, because they've apostatized, You apostates, using your own and your supporters' propaganda, have violated the original Islamic culture and by targeting pure Islamic beliefs. Therefore, the punishment of apostates in Islamic law is clear and obvious, and it is clear and obvious because it is death. Next slide. So this is the situation now where we've given... The the coalition forces, the U.S. government has given up the city of Kabul. There's military personnel and we still got people at Kabul airport and we're trying to work out how we can get persecuted religious minorities, people that worked for the U.S. government, for the, the U.S. Army and other organizations 
And we also had U.S. citizens and some other countries. We had their citizens that were there that are on our manifests that we're putting together so that we can get permission to land planes in Kabul airport in order to evacuate the people. But we've lost all the ground up to Kabul, and we have to get them through the gates that are now swelling with people. At the same time, the Taliban know that all the most vulnerable people and the people that they want to kill are running for the airport. And I don't think any of you will ever forget if you watched it and saw some of those U.S. planes, military transports, taking off from Kabul airport with people hanging on for their dear life to escape and falling to their death as the planes disappeared into the air. So we had a problem. Shooting at the gates, crowded gates, and there was no way in that kind of security situation that we could get the people through. So this is a video that I got from my people on the ground, um, and they said to me, we can't get through because this is what it looks like. Play the video. Impossible. The amount of times we tried to move people through the different gates, and at one point we heard that we could get people through um, Abbey Gate, and we knew that we had people from the inside, because there were good people from the inside that understood that we needed to help people get through the gates, and they were helping us. And so they would say to us, you know, come to this gate at this time, I'm on the shift, and I'll try and pull, you know, these American citizens, or I'll try and pull these Christians through for you, while we've got planes landing on the tarmac empty, waiting as long as we can to try and get the people through the gates and onto the tarmac to board the plane. And so we're sitting in this situation trying to get them through, and they're saying to us, come to this gate. And so we come to that gate, and the next minute we hear that there's a seven suicide bombers coming from one of the ISIS-K mosques on the way to the gate. Or we hear that there's shooting at the gate. And as you know, Abbey Gate was one of the gates that they didn't that managed to blow up the gate. Thirteen American servicemen were lost in that bomb explosion, and we lost a number of our Christians um, at that gate waiting to pass through. Next slide. So the situation was um, terrible. Many people are displaced, and it's a difficult situation at the gates. We, we, managed, we did manage to get eight planes off from Kabul airport, very difficult circumstances. And as the 31st of, of August is drawing near, we realize that basically Kabul city is untenable. And if we're going to get the thousands of people that we needed to get out, and we had at this point over 6,000, so we got about 4,500 out through Kabul airport, and we have like another 6,000 that we're trying to limit it to, mostly Christians. Some of our Christians that we try to get through this situation, we couldn't get through. In fact, we had the leaders of the underground church some of the pastors that were at high risk, 
and we tried seven times to get them through Kabul airport. We never did succeed to get them out through Kabul and we realized we needed to move to another airport that we could control the situation better. So we started negotiating and looking. There were a team of us working on it to get out through Kabul, uh, sorry, a northern airport. We eventually did. We opened that airport and we got we were part of a team that got out another 36 planes from that airport. Uh, altogether, I was personally involved and helped get over 12,000 out, including 3,600 of the underground persecuted church. Next slide. So we moved them into safe houses and we started feeding them, looking at how we could get safe passage and how we could move them up to this northern airport where we would try and um, try and evacuate them from there. And so um, it was a massive operation, as you can imagine. We go up to the, the north, we start evacuating them out from there, and many of them, you might have heard, um, ended up in Doha. Some of them ended up in Abu Dhabi. Greece took some. And, um, and altogether, by the end of the year, we were responsible for over 12,000 that we got out last year. Next slide. And once they're in that situation, obviously we have to look at what we're going to do to move them onwards from there. Currently um, in Abu Dhabi, at one point we had over 9,000 people, including most of the underground uh, church. Some of the leaders, when we got them out, we got them out through Doha. They've now made it into the United States. But the vast majority of the people in the pew, like you and me, ended up in Abu Dhabi, while some of them were at such high risk that we still haven't managed to get them out, and they are in safe houses. Next slide. So these are some of the people um, that we got out uh, in, in the planes. You can see them coming out. This was the plane um, that we had uh, 334 people on this plane, including the 22 family members of the underground church. Next and um, obviously not all of them wanted to stay. So some of the people um, decided that they would remain in Afghanistan. And so part of what we do is not only to help those that want to get out, but those who want to continue and to remain, we continue to support them and help, help them. Many of those of the underground church obviously haven't been identified yet, but we've had cases since that this, next, this last couple of months where they have been found and they have um, managed to locate some of these Christians. And this year alone, we've lost two um, members of the Christian community in Afghanistan. They were hunted down, taken, tortured, and killed by the Taliban. Uh, I think one of the most difficult things when we were doing the evacuations was also during that period, we lost a lot of the Christian community. It was obviously, you can see it was a very volatile Situation. It was very difficult when you have a flight manifest with all the names of the Christians that you're trying to get out and then you end up getting a call from some of the other believers saying, take these people off, can we add other names in because the Taliban have taken them and they are now dead. Next slide. This is um, one of the young Christian women that we assisted 
and uh, are still busy helping. She was a Christian. They found out that she was Christian. She was taken by the Taliban and forced to be a child bride to a, tal- a Talib or a Taliban commander. And when um, she broke free, they came after her and her mother and they threw acid on her face. So that was the punishment, permanently discarring her for um, not obeying the Taliban. We then managed to get her out the country and currently um, she is on her way, hopefully, to a program that we run with some of the girls um, like this in Afghanistan who we've managed to get out because part of the Taliban understanding is that women shouldn't go out of their homes. They should be completely covered with a shador and women after the age of 12 should not be educated. Also, women aren't allowed into certain most positions, they're only allowed to do certain jobs in the community, and they generally believe that women should be home um, and not really partake in any parts of society. They definitely don't have any women in government. And so one of the things that we do is we help those girls get out um, and we help them get an education. So we have a program that we're running. Next slide. Um, And these are some of the women that we've got out uh, through different countries, and then we bring them into Cyprus, where we have a ministry that offers them psychosocial assistance, and then we work with the university to get scholarships for them so that they're able to complete their studies. Next slide. This is them arriving in Cyprus. Um, They are now free to study, free to dance, and free to listen to music. They're also free to practice their faith, all things that they can't do under Taliban rule. Next slide. We also managed to evacuate um, over 1,000 women judges and lawyers that had been put in place by the EU and uh, the USA to adjudicate Taliban human rights violations. And then when the Taliban was given control over the country by the United States, those uh, women were now at high risk and and were hunted down as well. We put them into safe house, and this is the group that we managed to get into Greece. Next slide. So some of the pastors that we've managed to get out um, have come to the United States, and we've got a number of the members of the underground church that have come in, and some, these are two of them that we've got. There's another group. There's, they've been split up throughout the country. What's been absolutely amazing is that most of the, the underground church we got out in October last year, so it's taken a while for them to get into the United States and to settle. But, you know, they turned around immediately, open churches, and are evangelizing and on fire for Jesus in the areas that they are working in. So just, I'm always reminded of that story about how when Jesus died and the church waited, you know, the first early believers waited in Jerusalem for Pentecost and the Holy Spirit to fall. And then once they did that, they went out 
um, into the nations and spread the good news. And that's how today you and I can have faith. And they suffered huge persecution, but they, were, they knew the living God. And because of that, they were able to go into the nations, spread the gospel of Christ, and have a huge impact on the world today. And I always think that they are so similar, and their story is exactly the same. The fact that they've gone through all that they've gone through, they've been persecuted for him, and they're still able to rise up and go, we're going to plant churches, and we're going to carry on in the nation now that the Lord has put us in. Next slide. Um, some of them we haven't been able to get into the United States. We've had to get into other countries. This is a Christian girl that was kidnapped by the Taliban, and she was forced to marry an old um, Taliban soldier. So this is the picture of her um, at that wedding ceremony, where obviously you can see she's absolutely devastated. And we managed to get go in, get her back, and pull her out of the country, and... Thank God Brazil was willing to take her. And you can see there she is um, with the President Bolsonaro, who's been an amazing uh, witness to the whole world. He's now in a very difficult situation in Brazil. Pray for him because what he's done for the persecuted church, no one else has done. So um, she's now living in Brazil, free to practice her faith. The Brazilian church rose up and they are absorbing and helping us bring the persecuted church into Brazil. So the local churches are actually doing the absorption program um, so that the government doesn't have to. And that's very critical because these people have been through a lot of persecution. We don't want them to arrive in Brazil and be left on their own. We want the local body of Christ to come inside them, to support them, because we all need to understand if one part suffers, we all suffer, and they are part of us. Next. Um, so I'm going to end now with just a story of one of the guys. And, I, you know, for some of the, the young people that are here, you know, the Lord speaks in many ways. And he speaks to you in dreams and visions, and he talks to you. And there was a young guy in Afghanistan. He was uh, in his teens, like some of you here today. And the Lord spoke to him, and he became a believer. And he had it through dreams and visions. We hear about this all across the Middle East. The man in white comes and tells him that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And they believe. And so he started looking online. He was very good on the computer. And he started reading up about who is Jesus and trying to understand he was on fire. And his family realized that he was a believer. And they beat him to a pulp to the point where he woke up a few weeks later in hospital and he had no recollection of how he got there and he was black and blue and so he got up and realized he could no longer live in that city any longer he's a young guy 16 and he fled down to Kabul where he found an underground church in Kabul and started worshiping with the pastor and the the, the um, local community there in hiding became very good friends with the pastor's kids and one day, a suicide bomber walked into their um, building where they worshipped and blew them up. He managed to survive, but all of his friends, the pastor, the only survivor from the family was the wife, but everyone else, including the local congregation, died. He then 
somehow managed to escape, got out, and during the evacuations when the Taliban came into power and we had that critical stage, I heard about him and we knew that he wasn't going to make it on his own. They knew who he was. The family knew who he was. We, needed, he was, we knew he was a high priority to evacuate. So we evacuated. We managed to get him out into a safe house and we hid him for a number of months. We had to get a special security team to go and pull him out and to help him. We got him onto the plane from the northern city that we were operating from and we managed to get him out into the UAE. And from there, it took a few months for us to get him out. But we finally managed to get him to Canada. And so I heard just this week that he's just arrived in Canada and he's now safe and he's joined a local congregation. And so I believe today that the call of God is to rise up and stand for the persecuted church, to pray for them, but also to help them practically. So if you want to do that today and help this young man, I won't tell you his real name because it's dangerous, but we call him Ben. If you want to help people like Ben, then give to the projects like this that we're running that go to direct assistance to the persecuted church. And you can find out more about it um, on the table at the back or you can speak to your pastor, and um, we're, we're delighted to be here today and be able to speak about some of what's going with the persecuted church. This evening as well, I'll be speaking about some things that are going on in the Ukraine and also Iraq and Syria. But thank you.